Um, I have bought your book, the the the, um, uh, the most recent one, anyway. And um, you know, like monsters and or creatures of the Great Lakes, I haven't had a chance to read it, so I'm so sorry. I'm it's literally okay. back to the wall, just trying to to get through this whole thing at the moment. So I'm I'm in a new position in London, and it's a huge, huge place, and uh, you know, 60 staff members and writing a second book at the same time so you know uh yeah it's it, i'm not getting much reading time but it looks so interesting and because i love lake monsters and i know that's not your only book but because i love lake monsters and i haven't really researched those areas the great lakes i thought well come on you've got to talk to Sheeta and ask her yeah about about this book so let's just go into why why that name why those lakes and what did you find so um i live in michigan which is surrounded by the great lakes and i have always had a fascination in the lake monsters i know that we have them in the great lakes and our historical reports go back to the earliest european settlers who decided to go fur trading along the lakes routes and would report back seeing different things the native americans um have told stories about these creatures since they they started experiencing it and so we have a a lot of different reports and we've got we've got so many great lakes we've got michigan or Lake Michigan, Lake Ontario, Lake Superior, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario. And at one time, Lake Champlain was even considered a sixth Great Lake. Um, wow. kind of, they've kind of dismissed that over the years. But these are big, huge, vast bodies of water that you can't necessarily see the other side um, of the lake from. And they are actually inland seas, freshwater seas. And they have the potential for lots of mysterious things to go on. Um, lake monsters being one, but uh, shipwrecks, ghost ships being one, haunted lighthouses being another, devil's triangles, all of this phenomenon uh, wow. we have located here in the Great Lakes. So it's kind of like when um, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz says, if I ever want to go looking for adventure again, I don't have to go any further than my backyard. <laughs> well, with the Great Lakes, except now that I own the Squatch GQ publishing uh, magazine, uh, I do kind of have to go out of my backyard because people kind of <laughs> get bored reading about the Great Lakes. So I do tend to venture off into, uh, well, into the great, horizon. Though. Yeah, that's And, fun. and that's looking tough. for new adventures and different yeah. things to write about. But the Great Lakes are just, um, they are so interesting. And uh, just the phenomenon of the lake monsters alone, um, I, I still find reports to this day. And it's like, I could really update the lake monster book, but, you know, that is kind of a bit of work. Um, yeah. yeah, I, published, yeah. I published the four magazines quarterly. So that's, you know, uh, quite a bit of work, too. Yeah, well, that's enough to be getting on with. I mean... You know, here Loch Ness, for example, would be our our largest inland uh, body of water, and that's only 24, 25 miles long, maybe a mile, mile and a half at its widest in some places. Yes, it's deep, 750 feet they say. Loch Morar is deeper at about a thousand feet, but you know, still, this is a tiny body of water. Even when I was at Lake Champlain, 
there were 14 miles wide in some places, 100, was it 14 or 15 miles long? 128 miles long. Oh, okay. So, I mean, and that's the, the smaller, of the, not even included one of the, as one of the Great Lakes anymore. Yeah, because like I was looking at the map. Lake Superior is like fourteen hundred feet yes. deep, and yeah, or deeper amazing. in certain parts. Yeah, amazing, and like you say, inland seas, actual inland seas that you can you can not see the other side of, and you can have diverse um, flora and fauna occupying without really coming to the attention of most people who even inhabit the lake and and um, and make their living upon it. What I'm interested in is the, the maybe the classic lake monsters in each one of those great lakes some of the classics and and lesser known monsters that's the starting with lake michigan for example okay so lake michigan for as big of a body of water as it is the most well-known lake monster reports for lake michigan is actually two giant turtle reports um and these harken back to the size of like the prehistoric uh archelon um yeah. turtle which wow. is bigger than most people's vehicles. He was 15 feet from the tip of his nose to the tip of his tail and 13 feet from flipper tip to flipper tip. And that was the average measurement, meaning that there could have been bigger or smaller uh, specimens swimming out there in the waters. But these um, giant turtle reports, um, there's the Stearns Bayou monster, and then there's the Lake Leelanau monster. And so that's, that is the major too with lake michigan the the scariest thing about lake michigan is the weather that develops on it and the fact that lake michigan is notorious for uh riptides and oh. people swimming in the water you know they don't necessarily understand that that phenomenon happens with the way that mm -hmm. lake michigan is formed and they're not prepared for when they do get caught up in a riptide and we have multiple drownings a year because mm. of the riptides, um, both on the Michigan side and the Illinois, Wisconsin side of, of Lake yeah. Michigan. So it, it does have its two lake monster reports, the giant turtles, um, but really the, the riptides and, and the weather patterns that create the huge storms, those are even scarier than well, any lake absolutely, monster. Absolutely. Actually, coming yeah. from a part of the UK that has a lot of riptides, you know, it's a really amazing, the power of those things. And oh, yes. it can almost pull you out from the beach. You know, I'm from the you, from you know, waist height water. You can get just yanked out. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's what really happened quickly. in Lake Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, well, I mean, as a body of water, to me, it was always always very mysterious but i was also thinking and i think what you said sort of confirms this to me when the body of water is too big yeah, it seems to be more of a darth in reports and i i would wonder perhaps that doesn't mean that there aren't other types of um unknown creatures there but just that the space is so vast they're not often seen right right but the interesting about lake michigan is that as it comes up around the state of Michigan, it goes into what's called the Straits of Mackinac. And then it turns into Lake Huron. And Lake uh, Huron is a very fast moving body of water that turns into the Detroit River. And in that body of water, that portion of, of water, we have a plethora of sea serpent reports. 
And that is what Lake Huron is most well known for is sea serpent reports. Um, being from eight foot to 80 foot, different, you know, colors, um, having gills, having sails down their back, whiskers. Um, there, but there's just a lot of different sea serpent reports in Lake Huron. And it's, there is a clear channel that flows from Lake Michigan into Lake Huron. And it's actually one lake, but, you know, we like to divide them up into two. And so you would think that the reports that we get from Lake Huron, you would be seeing in Lake Michigan. Mm. But for some reason, the sea serpents like that faster moving body of water that actually travel, travel southward. And they they seem to be more um, present in that body of water than the east to west flowing water mm. of Lake Michigan. So um, that, that one was always very interesting to me that, you know, in this connected body of water on one side, you have giant turtles on the other side, you mm. have giant sea serpents. That's interesting. I wonder if that, um, that could act as a sort of a bottleneck, especially with the, the, the fast moving water to funnel the fish stocks, you know, through, maybe that's a praying point. Well, it's, or... it's a very, um, it's a very wide body of water, and that is, that's the body of water that uh, Mackinac Bridge goes over. So it's about five, uh, five miles wide. Okay. So it, it's a it's a very large you know area, um, but the interesting thing is if as you're driving across Lake um, or Mackinac Bridge and you're looking down to the water, it's very clear, and you could see if there was something large underneath the water moving around because. The waters in that area is a very aqua blue, very light blue um, in that area. Um, during during the wintertime, they will get what they call the, the turquoise ice or the blue ice. And the ice, um, as it freezes over the top of the lakes right there, turns a really gorgeous shade of, of blue. And right. and people will you know, go up there just for that. They freeze their butts off, but they go up there just for that, <laughs> to, to look at that. Um, but it, it's a very clear body of water as you're as you're looking down at it from a couple miles, you know, like a mile in, in the air. Um, and if you've never driven off over Mackinac Bridge, it's one of those you either can do it or you, or you can't. And it's five miles long, and it's um, every time you go over it, you're like, okay, just just keep going straight just keep going straight oh um, really is it is it so, that high how high is it then the bridge it's pretty high it's yeah. i want to say it goes up at least a half mile above the water that's um, wow okay and um because it's that's, it, that's a huge bridge it's it's a very big bridge it's one of the biggest suspension bridges bridges in the world wow okay i mean i i would be with you i'm obviously feeling uh, a slight fear of heights there and what you translate you know, you're giving over to me we're on the same page we are in the same room yeah i, I uh, have a friend i have a friend yeah. who um she does not like driving over bridges so um at that point she usually has somebody else drive but i'm like it's my car i'm driving so I'm, i feel the same with everything i mean i have to do it sometimes especially when we're hiking and little expeditions and stuff and even a small climb from time to time and I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with it and I do it because there's people with me if it's just me I just no 
you know, I, I do it out, out of uh, to conceal my shame and fear <laughs> calmly while they're watching me. Now, I mean, that's that's quite amazing, actually. And I think a lot of people wouldn't really understand the scale. So the smaller, you know, the smaller aspect of this lake is five miles across. Right. You know, and that's, yeah, that's the, Mac- the Straits of Mackinac that um, yeah. flow from Lake Michigan to to Lake Huron. Wow. And in this country, you know, we just don't have any concept of that kind of distance with water. Yeah, we just don't have it inland water because we don't have that kind of space. We don't have right. that kind of um, area to to um, to investigate. And I think a lot of people have got to see that at least conceive of the possibility that within such a vast space and um, as you said, 1400 feet deep in some places, it would be almost impossible to fully explore the available. Oh, yeah, like Lake Superior is, um, she has her own set of rules of engagement. I will, mm-hmm. I will just say that um, she has quite a few lake monster reports, including the great underwater panther in a from Native American legends. But there's mm-hmm. there are stories of giant sturgeon being 40 foot long in that lake. Um, there's a a um, weird uh, creature called Pressy that um, is supposed to be serpentine, but also turtle-like. Um, I haven't seen that one. Um, I usually focus on uh, the great underwater panther in Abishu for Lake Superior. And we have a merman report from Lake Superior around the Pie Island area. And that is the great Manitou Nibanibis, the god of the lake. And um, so those those to me are more interesting because they um, the Native Americans talk about them. They're part of their storytelling and and folklore. And what I have found in researching um, pretty much since I was like 15 years old. uh, So that's that's, you know, over 20 years, over 40 years, actually. Um, is that behind every folk piece of folklore, legend, uh, every urban tale, every story, there is somewhere a grain of truth in a proven fact. And people came up with an explanation or a story for something because of something they witnessed themselves. And Mm. whether it was a moose that was swimming, you know, through the water or a cougar or something unexpected, people notice these things and they, they try to explain it in the best of their knowledge um, without, you know, the scientific data that we have today. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one, Absolutely. one of the interesting things I found out when I was writing my Lake Monster book is that North American moose will dive up to 20 feet underwater to eat underwater vegetation. Really? And if they they explode up onto the surface Mm. and you happen to be kayaking or canoeing past them when they do this, well, moose aren't that happy to see human beings when they're on land. So Mm. you can imagine how they react in the water. So that gives the impression of a lake monster. Um, You know, when you look at the details of, well, it had a horse-like head and uh, horns coming out of its head, a spiky coat, seaweed and algae all over it. And then you find this this gem of a fact that, yeah, moose will seal their nostrils shut and dive underwater to eat the underwater vegetation. I never knew that. 
I never need that. Back <clears throat> up and, and finish eating it. And they will do this repeatedly until they've had their full. And we also know this because um, orcas have been found with fully intact moose in their stomachs. Wow. Well, and so, can do orcas know, manage to get into those lakes? Is there a sea access to them? Well, so not in the in the Great Lakes area, but ah. moose are are um, the northern part of North America, going from like the northern United States into Canada, yeah. um, both on the east coast and west coast. You have moose. So in Maine, um, going up into like Nova Scotia. And then um, going, you know, towards uh, British Columbia and Alaska, even Washington, you have moose and you have orcas in those areas. And that if the be, moose yeah. is swimming through the sound trying to get from one body of water to the other, well, if it's in the orcas, you know, domain, that's then the orcas... That's a good meal for it. a pot of orcas, absolutely. No, I mean, that, that's, that's fine. For, for a moment there, I had a hopeful thought there was some sort of see access to those legs and as a, you know as a so as an explanation for itinerant sea monsters and things like that i was i, I, uh, I brightened up <laughs> i had this illumination i think i think lake no. ontario might be the only one that has a salt water access okay. but with most of the great lakes any bodies of water that flow into them um like the mississippi river the illinois river mm. the st lawrence causeway um, they have locks and dams in place because dams, yeah. we've gotten um, an infestation of Asian carp um, okay. in the Mississippi River and the Illinois River. And so they don't want those silver carp or those Asian carp getting into the Great Lakes because once that happens, though they are um, vegetarians and they eat the algae, they eat the seaweed. Well, once all that's eaten up and gone, the fish fry, the sports fishing fry, the baby fish have nowhere to hide mm -hmm. and are picked off by other predatory fish, birds, frogs, whatever. And if that happens for more than two generations, well, your sports fishing population in the Great Lakes is gone. Of course. That's and there's no, there's no really replacing it because in order to encourage further generations, you would have to totally eliminate the Asian carp population that would become overwhelming because they breed very well. They are quite a sizable fish. And the only thing they eat is the vegetation. So that would have a massive detrimental effect on any of the Great Lakes. It's it's interesting to me. I mean, you know, we're in that stage now where we aren't we in the world, or at least our countries in the world, where in introduced species, especially it's sports species, introductions. Yes. These in species that are introduced to our countries, and Britain is a, a really good example of species that have been introduced. And many people now accept as being just regular species like the grey squirrel and the Canada goose that have you know decimated local yes. populations. So we only have red squirrels now in the very north of England and Scotland. That's it. I remember seeing red squirrels in Wales where I grew up when I was a child. So, you know, it's just a recent thing. The bigger and stronger variant comes in. We've also got a problem here, at least in the Thames and some other places, with uh, the Chinese mitten crab. They okay. Going to all the rivers and they they burrow into the riverbanks and it it makes them less secure. So yeah, gosh, you know that that kind of stuff happens all the time and it's a shame. What what I think is very 
very interesting about that moose theory, though. I like that. But at the same time, you know, going back to your um, First Nations legends and uh, folklore and, and beliefs, it's hard for me to believe that even in that situation that somebody local to that environment who would have lived closer to animals than, than we live now would be fooled by such a, a surprise well, sighting. You have to you have to put them yourself in their mindset that their their explanations for things came from their shamans and their chieftains and their canoes were only they were dug out canoes so weighted down with pelts or copper or anything else that you know they had gone and foraged mm-hmm. these canoes probably would have only been a couple of inches above the water's surface uh, okay. and they would have kept the lake shore within sight because if a big storm came up mm-hmm. and they believed that the great underwater panther in the bishu would send the storms to drown them because one of the native american beliefs is if you took an ounce more of anything that you needed, that was considered greed, okay. and the lake monsters would take back what you took. Oh, and really? And the justification for sinking your boat and drowning your crew. So they were very, very, I don't want to say, because superstitious is a, a, um, a European, you know, American wow. type, you know, mentality. but. The Native Americans were very cautious of this and always worried that, you know, did we take too much? Are we going to be in trouble with the the lake monsters or any of the Manitous? Mm. And to be paddling along and suddenly have this animal. And moose are huge. Yeah, well, absolutely. Terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And so to have this huge animal explode out of the water next to you and break the surface of the water and you're not expecting that. And you see this animal with seaweed hanging off of its, you know, antlers and its fur covered in algae or seaweed and it's eating algae and it's, it's pawing the water and thrashing the water. You're going to get as, you know, far away from that animal as you can, as fast as you can. And you're not going to, you know, you're going to look back and make sure that you got away from it. But by then either the animal has swam out of the lake and is on lakeshore and gone in, back into the woods or it's still back under the water to eat more vegetation because the threat of humans is gone and you're going to paddle away as fast as you can hoping that you never see that and all it takes is one encounter like that and for the tribes you know the the men to get back to the rest of the tribe and to tell the chieftain that the shaman that that spreads through the whole camp. And then every time you meet a new Native American tribe, you give them this tale of warning of be careful when you cross this lake mm. because there's this creature in it and word of mouth travels very fast. Well, there's, there's even, you know, um, examples, sorry, on, isn't there, of, um, of the First Nations people telling the European settlers, be careful because yeah. X, Y, and Z on the lake. And I think... That's when you know this is a this is a cautionary tale that's based upon some sort of incident or incidents. Right. It would make sense, I think, as well, if you have um, an animistic or uh, nature-based belief, and you take a little too much out of that, or you you um, um, traverse some of those precepts of religious, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, rights and wrongs. 
And then so let's say you do take a bit too much copper or whatever you do and it sinks your boats. Well, I mean, that's going to be interpreted yes. as the gods that's punished you. That's an explanation given when, mm-hmm. when you don't return after a period of time. That's yeah. going to be the explanation that the tribe comes up with for why you didn't return. Yeah. And whether it was a natural occurring event where a storm came along and sunk the canoe or yeah. they did take too much and, you know, the canoe starts taking on water and they can't either swim or paddle fast enough to shore. Yeah. Um, you know, when they encounter riptides or stuff like that, this is all, you know, explained away by, well, they must have angered the lake monster. Do you yeah, think this is like a coping mechanism as well? Um, in, in the same way that we, we cope with things now, and especially in those archaic times where you know, life isn't fair and it isn't always just accidents happen, yeah. bad things happen. And then you have to explain it through some religious doctrine. Oh, it's because they, you know, they sinned against the gods in some way or the spirits of the lake. That right. must have been it. It's not just because life is horribly unfair. And they just were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. And these things can then grow up around it. And I've noticed that in places like Alaska. I've even noticed it in um, water horse, like Kelpie um, myths of Scotland and Ireland with the Pierce, where they're said to have you know, invited children to, to play on their backs and then they dive into the water and drown right. them. This is clearly a coping mechanism, I, in my view, for a parent that's, Let's not watch that child, and then the child is drowned because they got too close to the water. And well, it must have been the water kelpie. It must have been the pierced that right. dragged them in. You know, it's interesting how universal that is. You know, in in all cultures all around the world. Yeah, it it you know, and we find um, you know different stories. Um, now, the great underwater. Um, panther or lynx or, or dragon as you know depends on what tribe you talk to is what i call uh, or what i put into the group of the amalgamations and that uh, is creatures that have a lot of natural details like the horns like um the uh fur or scales horse-like head or dragon-like head but it's all these different elements put together, and most of them come from Native American tales. So, in Lake Superior, Superior, you've got the great uh, underwater panther Anabishu. Lake Ontario, you've got Kingsley. You've also got Onair. You've also got um, Gassendia. Um, in Lake Huron um, area, you've got a creature called Carcagna, and they are all, you know, part of um, tales of warning of, you know. If you if you don't heed the natural warnings, then this is what's going to happen. So, like with O'Neill, if you see fog coming and you hear this the the wind howling, it's said that O'Neill, who can appear in two different forms, is coming and is warning you to stay off the lake. And if you don't heed his warning, well, you get lost in in one of the storms. And you know, but O'Neill did give you the warning. Um, Gassendia is said to be a meteor dragon that flies around the the lake surface and dives underwater and uh-huh. was seen by the French explorer Jacques Cartier and um, his men and was documented, you know, as being uh, blue with an orange flame uh, uh-huh. engulfing it. 
And no matter if he was above the water in the air or in the water, he was, uh, you know, surrounded in this flame at all times. Um, Kingsley is from Kingston, Ontario, and was said to be a dragon type, you know, creature that swam through the water and was seen so often that boat captains decided they were going to catch him. And fortunately, their plan never worked because I don't think it would have would have turned out very well. One one captain had like a dog kennel on top of his uh-huh. uh, deck. Another had like a steel crane with a noose okay. to winch him out of the water. And the third captain got um, barrels of hops and mash and sailed around Kingston uh, and dumped the hops and mash into the water, hoping to get Kingsley drunk. Wow. And, um, oh, wow. Killed off everything else in the water, but they, they were never able to catch yeah. Yeah, I mean the 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 fish were absolutely wasted. I'm guessing, but um, yeah, yeah, not the 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 beast itself. It's interesting to me. I think it's very interesting that there's such universality of um, traditional explanations for lake monsters, for the dangers of water as right. well. But the other thing on top of that that always brings me back into this belief that there could be something there is the modern day sightings these inexplicable very descriptive sightings that happen so do you have anything like that for the great lakes things that happened in the last so 10 lake, no, or so years so in lake erie there have been plesiosaur reports going back to the first settlers along the lake erie shoreline and one of the ones that stands out to me the most it happened i believe in like the 1970s and um, could be earlier, but there was a pastor and his wife who had gone over to one of their church members' house, and they were helping her set up in the backyard to do a Bible study, and they observed what they assumed was the hull of a boat being washed towards the beach with the waves, and they thought that a boat had wrecked and overturned, so they immediately started calling out across the water, uh, is anybody out there? Does anybody need any help? They started calling for help, um, running up and down the shoreline, trying to see if there was any um, survivors. And then all of a sudden, the the object that they thought was the hull of a boat that had been slowly moving in towards the shore abruptly started moving against the current very quickly, very powerfully away from them and then dove underneath the water and they believe that that is the creature that they call bessie everything rhymes with nessie i i I, that one just the only one that doesn't is champ in ogopogo everything else they oh we gotta rhyme this with you know there's tessie there's nessie there's pressy oh yeah yeah, same it's been storzy and all the all the rest of these things well i mean look that's the infamous sighting and i suppose that other creatures would be named in emulation of it It has something to do with local well for newspaper headlines of course to sell those and perhaps local tourism in some some ways as well yeah you want to you want to remind people of that um cryptozoological gold mine that's still paying out to this very day some, some places they don't really take advantage of it so like with with Loch Ness, you know that Nessie is one of the biggest attractions there. Oh, but yeah. here you've got Lake Champlain with its own lake monster that's been mm. documented for a, like 
century or more. And it's really not promoted. And you've only mm. got a few places that really even like acknowledge the champ phenomenon. Um, Port Henry does like the champ festival yeah. and has some, um, like different areas around the small town where you can like take pictures and stuff like that. There is um, the echo center in Burlington, Vermont that has um, a very small exhibit to champ. And then there's, there's just a few things here or there that really even like, you know, show that like I, I stopped at the champ, um, outposts that um last last June when I was there and they they only had one coffee mug with champ on it and I was like that you're called the champ outpost that's all you have and they're like yeah and like they had more maple syrup in stock than they did champ stuff and I was like yeah a lot of maple syrup it shocked me when I went there actually to Lake Champlain and that's the only one of those big lakes I've been to and I, I only went there for a few days back in 2018 and yeah I again, I kept saying to people, you've got a huge thing here that you can take advantage of and you're not doing it. I went to that. I think they had a lot more at the champ outpost when I went there because I even got a champ umbrella for my daughters that they still use. Okay. Yeah, they and, didn't have, uh, I was there like at the beginning of like, you know, June. And I'm like, really? Are you getting yeah, more? Stuff yeah. It's like, no, I found more champ stuff at like the Echo Center, the museum there yeah. and the gift shop. Than I found anywhere else um, around like Champlain, and and you would talk to people like, so have you heard any Champ reports? And they're like, mm. what's that? What? Yeah, exactly. And well, I've got a theory on that though. I've got a theory on why that is, and I think the reason it is because the the whole lake itself is a very very um, a popular and busy pleasure boating yes. body of water, and there's already business. That's yes. the point. And the business is pleasure boating and fishing and whatever else people do and holidaying around the lake. We've got a lake here called uh, Lake Windermere in the north of England that has its own um, Nessie-like creature called Bow Nessie. Okay. But it's also a super, the Lake District in the north of England, Cumbria. It's beautiful. It's a super popular hiking area, uh, you know, B&Bs and hotels and pleasure boating on the lake. And when we went there and I interviewed various witnesses who, who've seen this creature and asked the local people in the town. We thought, let's just get a mic out and a camera, ask them if they know about it. Nobody knew about it. No one. Oh, wow. And one of the captains that rented boats out on the lake said, yeah, I've heard of that and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's kind of rare and we don't really talk of it that much here. They had, they already had the money they needed. The business existed. And I think that's, for me, uh, from a cursory glance of the area, that's the reason for the lack of champ exploitation. Right. I mean, you you know better than me. I was there for a tiny time, but um, yeah, it would make sense to me anyway. Yeah, it's you know, I, and one of the things. So, as as a travel writer and somebody who has the magazines, one of the things that I love is when a a town or a city celebrates their small town monsters and um i want to see like it on every street corner and you know gift shops and and just you know overwhelm me with the cryptozoology um and there's only you know um point pleasant with mothman they they really celebrate mothman um rylander wisconsin with the hodag 
even though that yeah. is a fake creature that somebody mm-hmm. created, the town celebrates it. There's hoed eggs on every corner. There's mm-hmm. they've got gift shops, you know, um, with hoed egg stuff. You know, they they have the the parades for it, and uh, it's just like I love it when a town embraces what makes them unique and and really celebrates it and you know that's right. like lots of yeah. on my bucket list i'm um i'm trying to like uh because every may they do the marine reptile um symposium mm-hmm. there in dorset yes yes uh that's uh, in uh, lime reaches is that right yeah lime reaches yeah it's a beautiful so, town. It's such a fossil treasure trove there. I love and, that town. And I so that's on my bucket bucket list yeah. is to put up, you know, or or set up a a trip that I can do the marine reptile, you know, oh, suppose yeah. go fossil hunting there. And um they also have I guess they have ghost tours there too. So definitely hit I those mean, there's up. ghost tours everywhere in Britain. And, and then, <laughs> uh, then travel up to Ireland and Scotland and yeah. and you know go to all that. And so that's always been um for the past well before COVID hit, that was like on my bucket list to do. And then it was like, nope, they canceled. Nope, they canceled. Nope. They... So like everything hinges on if they're gonna run the marine, you know, reptile, prehistoric marine reptile. I think they will this time. I think they will this time. That town, uh, Lime Ridges, I've been there several times. And Dorset is the Jurassic Coast, as you know. Yeah. And I've seen like an, a completely fully assembled juvenile plesiosaur specimen in windows. There's shops that just set, are selling fossils that have been yep. found on the beaches and some re- reconstructions. And it's it's a beautiful, actually, it's a very well-to-do town. It's very rich and it's very nice. The whole area there, Dorset's beautiful and it, anyway. They, um, they also have a museum there that has mm. a lot of the prehistoric marine reptiles too. And that's like, I could spend the whole day in there just oh yeah, gaping in awe at, oh, look at that one, you know, and taking pictures. Mm. And, you know, I, I'm a person who has to like, you know, take 30 pictures of the same oh, yeah. thing. <laughs> I have like the perfect angle when it goes into my magazines. And that's just I, because. I, I have written and and done journalism so long that it's like yeah. you never rely, rely on just getting one picture. You get as many as you can from no, different angles. You never know which one's going to look best. You or, never you know, know, and you know what you see in the viewfinders and always what comes out right. in the in the edit later. Yeah, I mean, especially for me. Um, um, there was a joke made the other day actually when I was filming something completely innocuous went on my Facebook page that. It was typical that somebody who searches for Bigfoot should have such a shaky hand when holding a camera. And um, if I go out normally, I use like a stabilizer or something just because it's so. And I thought, yeah, that isn't that funny. That would automatically anything I grabbed without a stabilizer would be blurry. Um, yeah, I mean, you would love. Uh, sorry, I get comfy here. You would love Dorset. You'd love that whole area. Wales as well. Where I grew up. All of the cliffs around there have. More ammonites and other things uh, in the fossils, although a oh, new type of dinosaur was found there not so long ago. My sister, who's a fossil yeah. hound, found a few uh, ichthyosaur vertebrae as well oh, on cool. the beach. Mm. Um, and I think there was a new sort of raptor found by a, a boy just walking the beach with his mum and found this thing in some rocks and it's in the museum now. It's amazing. So there's that Loch Ness you should definitely do, but also Loch Morar at the same time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 
that's because it's completely clear. The water's clear. There was Loch, Mares, uh, Loch Ness. You know, it's completely peat filled. You can't see anything. Right. And um, you would literally need a, a, a breach before you, you know, to, to really capture anything at all, which does happen to some people. You know, I've been there a few times. It's never happened to me. I sat right next to that loch lake at night uh, for hours and hours and hours and realized, actually, it's so pristine there and so dark that even with all the, the little tourists, uh, the spots around, I couldn't see the creature if it was right in front of my face. That's how dark it is. It's, right. it's um, There's no light pollution at all. Um, even, I think, the most populated village around the loch, which is Fort Augustus, has only 500 permanent residents. Oh, okay. And this is, um, I think this is, uh, this is a place that sees something like three or 400,000 visitors a year. You know, and it, it's it's actually really tiny, very rural. And Loch Marais is even, even worse. I think there's two tiny villages and half the loch you can't even access from uh, from anything but a boat anyway. You know, so it's, it, it's a nice fireplace to research. Yeah. We should definitely do it. Um, let's talk about let's talk about sea serpents around okay. the United States and in Canada. Things like caddy and Cassie and and all these different things. What what's your what's your view on them? So, with the sea serpent phenomenon, the one thing yeah you have to keep in mind is anything that is northern. So. From the Great Lakes up, these are cold bodies of water. Mm. They do not warm up, and it's very hard for anything that is reptilian and snake-like to stay active in these waters. Mm. Because even in August which is our hottest month here in in the United States, the water is only comfortable, let's say. I'm not even, because it never gets bathtub warm. But so in August, you could probably, like on Lake Michigan, you could probably wade out to your knees. It'd be relatively comfortable. But when you get out to your chest, you start Mm. noticing a change in the water's temperature. Anything deeper than that, and you're starting to really feel the cold effects of the water. Okay. And it's just because we have ice. You know, the the, the Great Lakes do freeze over, and there's icebergs mm. in them. And there's been times where there's still ice going into late June in wow. the Great Lakes, in the wow. middle of the lake. I've been up in um, up in the UP of Michigan, um, driving through on Memorial Day weekend, and seeing huge ice sheets out in the middle of Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. Gosh! And you could see it from like two miles away. Oh, wait, I mean, are we talking big icebergs here, or sort oh, of yeah. ice on the water? No, we're talking we're talking like you know, twelve feet of of ice and snow sticking out of the water. And at least a a quarter mile long. So that's how cold these bodies of water are. So So this is like a hypothermia risk for a human, basically. Yes, 
Yes. So smaller lakes that can warm up in the summer heat, Mm -hmm. um, you might be getting large snakes swimming through it or eel type, you know, looking fish, long bodied fish. If it's a fish, then yes. You know, I say that you could probably mistake some uh, like the burbot and stuff like that. Um, as a sea serpent, if it's swimming at the surface of the water and just okay. its back is breaking the water. And especially if there's a line of them or a school of them that are swimming along together, that could give you the impression of a sea serpent. But in the northern, you know, United States going into Canada, even though we do get the sea serpent reports, Unless it's like a, a, you know, three foot diameter creature that's, you know, 40 feet long or more, it's probably not going to last too long in the Great Lakes just because our only warm months for the water would be Mm. June, July, August, somewhat going into September. And then it starts to cool back off because um, even in uh, late September, October, we have we have what's called the gales of November, which is the storms. But those start showing up in late September and October and certainly have, you know, uh, made their presence known throughout the history of the Great Lakes. So could this great size then, do you think that that could be a compensation for the cold, perhaps? It could be. And we we definitely know that there were, um, like with the plesiosaurs and the mosasaurs, we do know that there were cold temperature species. That could exist just like whales in the colder temperatures. But for any type of snake, anything that sustains for under 50 degrees, they start to shut down. And if you're in a body of water, the you know, you never warm up. And so if you're cold, you're only going to get colder. And so that's why um some of the lake monster reports that we or sea serpent reports that we've gotten in the Great Lakes have actually turned out to be um, uh, boa constrictors or um, types of python and anacondas that people have released into the water and thinking that, oh, they'll, they'll do fine. And it's like, no, no, they, they they go into a state of torpor when that happens or do they just die? Sometimes they do, you know, they get onto land and they can find, Because we on land we do have natural occurring species of snakes, mm. um, our biggest being the uh, Mississauga, the the eastern rattlesnake, mm. and they do survive quite well on land. We do have water snakes, but they are are small snakes, and by the time the the wind, you know, the the cold okay. starts happening, they are they are you know finding their hibernation spots and okay. they're they're done. But for these, you know sea serpents to be in the water they would only be in there during the the winter month or in the summer yeah. month and it would have to be when the snow when the ice is clear um there's another phenomenon that we have in the great lakes and that is that along the shorelines of the great lakes we have these ice boulders that form and the waves hitting against the shoreline round these and you've got like a 10-foot path of these ice boulders slamming against the shore. Wow. So 
and then the rest of the lake is frozen over. So you're not really, that's not yeah. a hospitable place for anything that's an air breather to try to stake out a living. Um, it's even worse if you're somebody who's, you know, uh, uh, trying to get off the lakes and you, you hit that swatch right there where it's the ice boulders and you're going to get battered with those things. Wow. I mean, that's, a, that's a, this is always the thing that comes up with Lake Champlain and clearly these lakes as well. Is where do they since and since they're inland, they're not necessarily connected to the sea for the most part. Where do these creatures go in the winter if they are reptiles, right. if they need to hide, or what type of reptiles are they? Are we assuming that they're cold blooded? You know, right? Could could there be a possibility that they are warm blooded animals? But even then, how do they keep themselves warm in such you know terrible conditions? Um. I know people like Scott Marlis used to talk about the hums being fat reserves or some sort of ballast, but it was also talked about as a fat reserve at one point. Right. Are, are these their survival, you know, tools for that environment? And that, that was very interesting to me because it seemed to, to at least bring a, a reason and a purpose, theoretically, so to what the, the hums could represent, especially since most of the sightings we have in the northern hemisphere or in cold bodies of water, um, you know, whether they freeze or not. That's that's interesting to me. Do do you think there's a possibility that they could be a reptile that's uh, a surviving relic of some kind and also warm blooded and oh, we do know, <laughs> able to, so, you know, wait out the so winters? We do know that alle- so we do have American alligators and crocodiles here in the United States because so many people have brought gotten crocodiles as pets and then released them. We now have a breeding population here in the United States, but we do know that there's alligators as far north as the Ohio river, which does freeze over, but the crocodiles, when the water starts to freeze up, what they will do is they will come to just barely the surface of the water and they will stick their snouts up. Wow. And as long as they can breathe, they go into a process called uh, brumination and their heartbeats slow down to, I think, one beat for every two wow. minutes. And this Thank actually you. happens in Africa, too. Um, there's certain times where you can actually cross the rivers without fear of the crocodiles because when it gets cold in Africa and they go into this almost like hibernative state in yeah. Russia, that's what the brumination is. It's a hibernated state. They, they go almost like into a induced trance and uh-huh. they, but they can stay underwater in Africa In North America, they will actually come up to the water surface and people go out on the, the Ohio rivers and they say, it's the damnedest thing to see a, a frozen uh, body of water. And here are all these alligator snouts sticking out of it. <laughs> I have seen a picture yeah. of that, actually. And I remember thinking, really, is this possible? Surely the yeah. creature just freezes to death. And But no. Yeah. This... No, they, they, they slow down their heart rates wow. to, to compensate for that. And because it's a river, um, you know, it only freezes over if it gets really extremely cold. And then once warm water... Um, you know, from industrial sites or stuff starts moving through the the river system that 
breaks apart the ice and unthaws it, and then they can go swimming away. But yes, they. So it is possible for large reptilian aquatic creatures to preserve themselves in cold bodies of water, but they have to be able to breathe and get that oxygen. Mm. So as long as they can do that, then they're fine. As long as they have a a good fat store or, or deposit on their bodies or in their bodies, then they can, you know, sustain on that. And then they can find a warm place to haul out and sun themselves, warm themselves back up, and they're just fine. Snakes are a little bit more delicate, more vulnerable, because they don't have that hard um, exterior to protect them. Uh-huh. With a snake, if they get cut by the ice or, or anything like that, they're, they have to find a you know place where they can stay long enough to heal and if they get cut too deep, then they pro- they're probably not going to to heal from it. That I mean, that makes sense to me. And I mean, I don't believe that these serpentine creatures in the Great Lakes are snakes anyway. Or they, well, where I mean, just finally before we finish up, what where does your personal preference lie? Do you think we're looking at you know amphibians of some kind, or are we looking at? Some sort of reptile that's managed to survive in these conditions. I think with the sea serpents as a category, this, you know, what people were probably seeing was different specimens of a, either a group of long-bodied fish or different types of freshwater eels that, you know, due to human encroachment, they possibly have died o- out over the years. Mm. Um, but I believe that it is a aquatic species that is very, you know, native to the Great Lakes and can withstand the super cold icy temperatures that our lakes get. 